This is Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Janine. Having some technical difficulties, so I'm going to preach old school this morning with the handheld mic. Put that down here, and we're, we'll be done with the uh, the wireless. Let's pray together. Our great and glorious God, we thank you that that you have done great things for your people. Lord Jesus, we thank you that indeed you ushered in your kingdom and that you brought the good news of the kingdom to your people and to your church. And so, Father, I pray that as we consider what you have called us to specifically as your body here in downtown Memphis, Tennessee, that you would open our hearts and minds to your kingdom, to your kingdom message, to your kingdom community, and to your kingdom mission. That, Father, we might be about what you have called us about and what you have called us to. Lord Jesus, we need you to be among us this morning. We need your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom gospel. And so, Father, we pray that you would roam about by your spirit in and through us to convict us of sin, convince us of your grace, give us new thoughts and new visions about what you would have us do, how you would have us live, how you would be glorified in and through us individually and corporately as downtown church. And, Father, we pray for our city. We pray for our country. We pray for the nations that the peace of Jesus and the power of his kingdom that brings that peace, that manifests that peace among a people, would extend and ignite that Jesus might be lifted up, that you might be glorified. Father, we pray that you would do in and through your people what only you can do. Father, we look forward to what you're going to do in the next few minutes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Justin Fuente. That's a name that we didn't know much about just a few years ago. Uh, He arrived in town in 2012, and when he arrived, it was a pretty bleak scene when it comes to Memphis Tigers football. In fact, there were articles being written suggesting that maybe it was just time to give up and throw in the towel. Maybe it was time just to end football at the University of Memphis. That first year, that seemed to be a good idea. <laughs> we went uh, four and eight. The next year, uh, we got our hopes up again, and we went three and nine. But last year, there you go. Last year, we went ten and three. We won the conference championship. We went to the Miami Bowl and won the game and the post-game fight, too. (laughs) And we even capped it all off, finishing in the top 25 in the nation. 
And what happened? Last night at the Liberty Bowl, we had double the attendance. Forty-something thousand people showed up at the Liberty Bowl to cheer on the Tigers for their not only opener, but their first win of the season, their decisive win of the season. What has changed? What has changed is a good coach with a compelling vision. And when I say good coach, I don't just mean some a good technician, but I mean someone that came in that the players could trust in, uh, someone that they respected, Someone that he developed a relation or they developed a relationship with and he with them and they got tight and they, they decided that, hey, we want to play for this guy. We believe in his vision. We believe in his mission. We believe in Tigers football and we are committed to it and we're going to win. We're not going to lose anymore and we're going to hit the weight room early and we're going to, we're going to be there in off season. We're going to be there throughout the season because we believe that we have a good coach with a compelling vision, a coach that believes in us, a, bl- a coach that has sacrificed to be here for us and a coach that, that we can follow. As we think about the vision and mission of downtown church, it's going to be sort of ho-hum. Okay, here are four little things. Unless we understand that we have a good coach with a compelling vision. That we have a good coach and he is king of the world. (laughs) He's king of the universe. And he has set up a kingdom among us. And he has set up a kingdom within us. And he is extending that kingdom throughout the world through you and me. And that we have a reason to live. We have a compelling... He didn't just make us players so that we could all kind of show up casually on Sunday and go about our lives and be a little encouraged so we could go back to those horrible jobs that we have. And But he, he has redeemed us and he has brought us into a mission. I love how our friends at Fellowship Memphis um, say it in their new member um, material. They tell their new members, I think in every class, that, hey, you're not getting on a cruise ship when you come to Fellowship Memphis, but you are getting on a warship. And I would tell you the exact same thing. Dear friends, God has redeemed us to go to battle. He's redeemed us to go to war. It's about His kingdom and about His glory. It's worth spilling your blood over. The blood of your children and the blood of your family and the blood of your friends. And so as we look at the vision and mission of downtown church, we're not just trying to find some obscure little points that, that you know, this little niche that we can market ourselves with and, and become relevant to the culture around us. But what we're doing is we're finding those values, we're finding those marching orders, we're finding that vision that God has for His church, that our King has for His church, and that every church should possess, and yet every church apply maybe a little differently. And so this morning, let's look at that vision, let's look at that mission, let's look at who we are and answer that question, who is or what is downtown church and what in the world are we to be about? And the first thing we need to see is that we are a kingdom-driven church. 
a kingdom-driven church. What in the world does that mean? Last weekend, um, we remembered, we didn't celebrate, but we remembered the uh, 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and the damage, the horrible damage that it did uh, to New Orleans and that whole part of the coast. And as I was seeing tweets about it and uh, Facebook posts, uh, it made me curious. And I went to um, I went online just to, to read about it and kind of refresh my memory about Hurricane Katrina. And I came across uh, the words of uh, a pastor, Leonard Lucas, who was a native New Orleans um, um, a New Orleans person. I don't know what you call those people. Um, And this is what he said right after the hurricane. He said this, The whole fabric of our city has been destroyed. Who better to reweave it than its churches? As a church, we have to fight for the soul of our city. Memphis has a lot of destructive elements to it. We are the poorest city in the country. How do you as a believer respond to the devastation around us? How do you as a believer, is it any different than those who write opinions in the commercial appeal? Is your chatter any different? Is your uh, themes of your conversations any different from the talk shows that bash our city? And that bash those people or those people. That try to polarize the city. That try to create an, an, an air of superiority of those that have the answers and those should know that we have the answers. Is your chatter any different? You see, it must be. It must be. What is the response to the brokenness around you? The brokenness in your family? The brokenness in your neighborhood, the brokenness at your workplace, the brokenness in your school, the brokenness in your city, your country, and the world. How do you respond to it? What we have here in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, is that Jesus didn't only come to bring personal salvation. He didn't just come to restore us personally, but he came to restore his kingdom. He came to restore this world. Because it's His, and because He reigns supremely over it. Our King who saved us has given us marching orders. Undoubtedly, the most famous sermon that Jesus preached was the Sermon on the Mount, contained in Matthew Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And and in that sermon, it's all about the kingdom. And let's just kind of brush through it real quickly. I mean, if you look at the beginning, it starts with what? The Beatitudes. And what's the very first Beatitude? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is what? The kingdom of God. There it is. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is defining the nature of the citizens of the kingdom of God. And what are we to be? We are to be, we are to be poor in spirit. Now, what in the world does that mean? It means this. It means that we understand that there's brokenness not just in the world. You see, everybody understands their brokenness in the world, and if you only understand that there's brokenness in the world, then you're going to sit on your high horse and you're going to judge it. You're going to say, oh, look at those Republicans. 
You know, look at those Democrats. Look at that libertarian. And we all say, look at Trump. What in the world is that? You know. Do you see, we're, we're going to be polarized if we see the evil out there. Look at those poor people. Look at those, look at those rich people. Look at those white people. Look at those black people. Look at the, those Germans. Look at the, I mean, we all recognize brokenness out here. But to be poor in spirit, you've got to understand that there is deep brokenness in here. You've got to understand that the problem is just not out there, but it's right here. And you see, those who are citizens of the kingdom understand that the brokenness is without and within. You want to know why downtown church was planted? It's because of this. It's because of this understanding that when things got tough in downtown Memphis, that the church abandoned downtown Memphis. That those with resources moved east or moved out of town altogether. And because of that, when, when the kingdom of God, when, when those with resources in the kingdom of God isolate themselves apart from the needs of the city and the brokenness of the city, what's going to happen? It's just going to get worse. And that's precisely what has happened. And so, as the church, we need to come and we need to say, where is the deepest brokenness in the city? Is it downtown? Is it north and south Memphis? Where is it? Then that's where we need to be. That's where we need to go. Why? Because Jesus has come to me. And I'm broken and I'm messed up. And I'm poor. But he became poor so I could become rich. Do you see it? That's how people and citizens of the kingdom think. They don't look at what is. They look at what should be. And that's why as we progress through the Sermon on the Mount, we get to the Lord's Prayer where Jesus teaches us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see, we sit in our city and we don't judge it, but we cry out to God. We stand as a priest and we intercede. We say, God, save our city. God, save those who are hurting. God, come and use us. God, where is the solution? We sit under your kingship. We sit under your lordship. Would you restore the kingdom? And we're a people of hope, and we're pushing in that direction. We're a people of love and forgiveness. Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Oh, but it's so much easier to judge. And what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't judge because by the standard you judge, you're going to be judged. Don't be a people of judgment. Be a people of grace and mercy. Why? Because you have received grace and mercy. And then what does he say? But God, how do we do that and survive in this horrible world? Well, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Believe that you have a king. Live like you have a king. Don't live like you're an orphan. Don't live like you're a citizen only of the United States or only of England or wherever you're from. But live like you're a citizen of the kingdom of God and the king has come. Do you see the difference? We're a kingdom-driven church. Does this city feel as if we're a kingdom-driven church? Do they feel like you're a kingdom-driven believer? And then secondly, we're a gospel-empowered church. Kingdom-driven, gospel-empowered. Undoubtedly, if you look at the history of the world, the, 
the Holocaust um, that occurred in Germany and around that part of the world was one of the most evil and uh, just dark times in the history of the world. Um, Jews, Jewish people, people who practiced their Judaism, people who were ethnically Jew, were rounded up and exterminated. Uh, You want to talk about racism. This was horrendous. And many in the church just were silent and backed away. But there were some leaders that stood up, and one of them was named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Lutheran minister. And he stood, and he spoke, and he wrote, and he preached. And he was arrested right before the end of the war and falsely accused of um, plotting to assassinate Hitler, and he was hung. But before that, in all of his writings... He demonstrated that he understood the reality of the kingdom and that the power of the kingdom was the gospel. And he did so in in sayings such as this. Listen to this. He he wrote, and and, and think think about the context within which he wrote this. He wrote, in the New Testament, our enemies are those who harbor hostility against us not those against whom we cherish hostility, for Jesus refuses to reckon with such a possibility. The Christian must treat his enemy as a brother and requite his hostility with love. His behavior must be determined not by the way others treat him, but by the treatment he himself receives from Jesus. It has only one source, and that is the will of Jesus. Do you want to know what Bonhoeffer said is the greatest tool and the greatest weapon that we have as a people? Is forgiveness and love. Is that what people see and feel oozing out of you? Is it forgiveness and love? Or is it justice and recompense and bitterness and anger? Are we any different? You see, friends, the the weapon that God has given us to fight the evil in our world is the same weapon that he used. How did he conquer sin and death? He came and incarnated among us. He received the condemnation of the world. And like a sheep before her, shears is silent. Jesus was led like a little lamb, the king of glory. The God who possesses all power and all might, who only had to give the little word and all evil would have been destroyed. But he said, kill me, kill me. I will take on the punishment. I will take on the evil. Kill me because that's the weapon to kill evil. It's not standing up for yourself. It's laying your life down for those around you. The most powerful thing that we can do in this world is to love our neighbor. The most powerful thing that you can do right now is literally to think about the people that consume your thought life because of what they've done to you. And forgive them as Christ has forgiven you. I came up with four names 
this week that I'm presently wrestling with. God, give us grace. I love what Brene Brown said. And I just thought of another one as I'm reading this, so make that five or six. <laughs> Nobody I saw here. Just, I'm serious. I really am serious. <laughs> what happens when you go off the script? Right there. All right. Let's listen to Brene Brown. I love what she wrote. Our ego is the part of us that cares about our status and what people think. About always being better than and always being right. I think of my ego as my inner hustler. Isn't that good? It's always telling me to compare, prove, please, perfect, outperform, and compete. Our inner hustlers have very little tolerance for discomfort or self-reflection. The ego doesn't own stories or want to write new endings. It denies emotion and hates curiosity. Instead, the ego uses stories as armor and alibis. The ego has a shame-based fear of being ordinary, parenthetically, which which is how I define narcissism. The ego says feelings are for losers and weaklings. Avoiding truth and vulnerability are critical parts of the hustle. Are you avoiding the story of the gospel? Are you just determined? I mean, you come to church, you were raised in the church, you're coming back to the church, but you are bound and determined, I am not going to be one of those people. There is no way you'll ever make me be that kind of person that comes and gets so excited that I actually raise my hand in worship. There's no way you're not going to make me do that. You are not going to make me start giving my money. You're not going to make me vote in a different way. You're not going to make... You're not going to make me. Do you hear it? It's ego. It, it lacks vulnerability. What you're saying is, my story is, no one defines who I am but me. But the Christian, the citizen of the kingdom of God, has a story that defines their identity. And it's the reality of a story that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the incorruptible God, the one who is full of both grace and truth, the one who literally humbled Himself and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. It seems like most politicians want precisely that. But we had one who said, no, I'm not in it for status. But he humbled himself and made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And he gave himself away. He was crucified on a cross. He became the curse for us. Dear friends, does that story define you? Does it define how you do business? Does it define how you relate to your neighbor? Does it define how you relate to those above you or below you? Does it define what you do with your time? Does it define what you do with your money? Does it define what you do with your body sexually? Does it define how you speak to people? Does it define, does it define you? You see, the gospel must not be a part of our lives. It must be our lives. And dear friends, 
If it is, then we are humble servants of the king in his kingdom, seeking to do his bidding around us. And then thirdly and finally, this kingdom focus, this gospel-empowered body in our day and age must be intentionally multi-ethnic and multi-class. We are kingdom-driven, gospel-empowered, distinctly and strategically multi-ethnic and multi-class. I went to our denomination's um, annual meeting. It's called General Assembly uh, this past June, and it was my first time in six years. Um, I'm not a great Presbyterian, um, but it was good. I'm back engaged in annual meetings. And I sat literally, I'll tell you how engaged I was, I sat literally on the the back row of the balcony um, of the church. And my my back was literally against the wall. Um, And as I sat there, I listened to report after report of how we've grown as a denomination, the EPC, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And we've added like 400 churches over the last seven years. And uh, amazing. I mean, a lot of great stuff going on. But as I sat there, I looked around and I realized that there were three African Americans in that room of about 1,500. And so I called texted those three. They're all friends of mine. And I said, let's have lunch. And after we caught up, I said, guys, what are we going to do? Now, this is four of us out of 1,500 and a guy who hadn't been to General Assembly in six years. People don't even know who I am in the denomination. And we left that lunch with a strategy, and those guys put me in charge of it. And so I got back and I wrote a letter to our, the moderator of our whole denomination and I, I listed, I said, I, I was very disappointed. Um, and I talked about looking out a, a sea of white, no, very few Latino, African American, Asian, African. And, um, but, and I also said, and I was very disheartened to see that our, the, our church planting initiatives do not include being multi-ethnic. There's no desire, it's not even on our radar to change. And then I offered the four of us, and lo and behold, the moderator emailed back. And we had a conference call with the moderator and the head of church planting. And one of the other ministers that I had lunch with, um, who is a, a real force in our denomination, has the largest church. Uh, it's Rufus Smith at Hope Church. And and out of that, because primarily Rufus, uh, nor I, nor any of us came out swinging, we just said, hey, this has got to change, and here's the Bible, and this is why they're coming to Memphis September the 16th, and, and they're bringing other leaders, and they're saying, hey, teach us, teach us, we want to learn. And I thought, man, that's the power of the kingdom. Again, I haven't been to a denominational meeting in six years. That has nothing to do with my reputation or who I am. I was embarrassed that my name was on it. But none of those guys said, hey, Richard, we hadn't seen you in six years, so you really don't have the right. Why? Because it, it resonated because it was kingdom. And it was gospel. 
why do we want to be multi-ethnic and multi-class? Because, friends, the biggest issue in our world is not economic. The biggest issue in our world is not health care or health. The biggest issue in our world is, is not even violence. The biggest issue in our world is relational. And that's why Jesus came. He came to reconcile those not only to God but to one another. The, the sole reason that Jesus came, the primary reason that Jesus came was to unite a world that was divided and to do so through his body and blood. It was to not only encourage us to worship together and live life together, but to empower us to do so. So how in the world do do men and women, boys and girls, in Memphis, Tennessee, the place where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, the place where hate and bitterness and racism still exist, it's palpable in some days. How do we come together? Because of Jesus. We have the only power and the only reason to come together and not just attend an athletic event and then go home, but to attend worship and go home together. To start changing what, uh, what those that we hang out with, those that we listen to, and those that we live around. And you say, Richard, why is that so important? Why can't I get, you know, I'm white and the music just, you know, I don't know, man. It just, it just seems too black sometimes. Or I'm black and it just seems too white sometimes. Or it, why do we do it? Because Jesus said in Ephesians 2, or Paul said in Ephesians 2.14, that he came to make the two one. And when we love each other, we give the world a God to believe in. And when we don't love each other, we give the world, we give the world a God that really shouldn't be believed in. You see, we, it's not just, man, I need to learn to defend my faith and I've got to have this answered. No, right now, we are witnessing to the world right now. We hear it all the time. Someone came into our worship recently who's from a Buddhist background and they said, this had an impact on me. You see, we are like a film being projected to the world all the time. And why did God come? To reconcile us to himself. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love each other. And love each other like I love you. I was sitting in our session meeting this week, and one of our elders said, I'm concerned because our last several membership Sundays have looked awfully white. And I, as a leader, agree. So what do we do? Go try to fabricate something? No. We just preach the gospel. (laughs) And we begin to change. We begin to come. We begin to invite. We begin to say, I'm not settling for this. We change who we relate to. We change who we spend our time with. We change our community. And our church will be changed. And then lastly, we're a disciple-making church. 
a disciple-making church. Our king has given us marching orders. Listen to it in Mark chapter 16. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. In Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Dear friends, we all are to be making disciples. And what does that mean? Well, I want you to understand that making disciples is not a strategy But making disciples is a commandment. And did you know that you're already making disciples? All of us have circles of influence. Whoever we are talking to on a daily basis, we are discipling. So if we are giving them criticism, bitterness, selfishness, Unless we're giving them generosity, unless we're giving them forgiveness, unless they're experiencing something different in us, then we are making disciples that look like us and not Jesus. So how do we make disciples? There is no perfect plan. You simply be. Your life becomes kingdom-driven, gospel-empowered, multi-ethnic, multi-class. And you bring others along with you as you're being kingdom-driven, gospel-saturated and driven, multi and living a multi-ethnic, multi-class life in Memphis, Tennessee. Come with me to serve as I mentor this young man or this young woman. Come with me as I bring a meal. Come with me as I go to this meeting. And, and I want to talk about how I'm, I'm thinking about this as a, a Christian business person. Or Just come with me. Come with me. That's all, Jesus did and he changed the world he said come with me come with hey you there come with me are you asking anybody to come with you your friends that's all it that's all that it that it uh, that it entails come with me and we help each other and we help others think about how to process their own brokenness in light of the grace of jesus and we're pushing them to say How is your life impacting the kingdom? How are you making the invisible kingdom visible? How can we do it together? So, dear friends, if that's the kind of church that you want to be a part of, then that's the kind of person that you have to be. And that's the kind of person that I have to be. Is the kingdom everything to you? Do you seek it first? Is the gospel the story that defines you? If not, then make it so this morning. Do you want to see reconciliation in Memphis so that the forces and darkness of evil will be defeated? Then change your life and trust God and walk toward the poor, walk toward the wealthy, walk toward African American, walk toward white. Change your life and bring someone along as you're doing it. Dear friends, I hope that you will pray with me, thy kingdom come, 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that you are king of your kingdom. That one day, someday, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses, that there will be um, confessing from every tribe and every language uh, throughout the nations. And yet it will be discernible as worship and praise of the Lamb who was slain from all eternity. And on that day, one day, someday, we won't have to make disciples, but you will have filled up your kingdom with your people, and we will be yours forever. So God, I pray that you would be with us in the interim, that you would empower us, that you would um, just motivate us, change us, save us, that we might be a people that love you and that love the world and that want to see healing instead of brokenness and reconciliation instead of betrayal and unfaithfulness and broken relationships. Do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.